Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. On Monday, September 11th, 1978, a 16-year-old Pam Shriver arrived on the campus of McDonough School outside Baltimore. A typical Monday for any other high school student. Except that Pam, one day prior, had played in the U.S. Open Women's Tennis Final. To get there, she had upset the number one player in the world, Martina Navratilova, in the women's semifinal. All at age 16. This improbable showing would launch a professional tennis career, in which Pam would win an Olympic gold medal in 1988, reach number three in the world in women's singles, and garner a staggering 22 Grand Slam doubles titles. 20 of those partnering with a familiar foe from that first U.S. Open, Martina Navratilova. In this episode, Pam describes growing up a sports lover in Baltimore, Maryland, Billie Jean King's inspiring campaign to create gender equality in tennis, Martina Navratilova's fearlessness and growth mindset, and how a championship playing career migrated into a broadcasting career at ESPN where she covers Grand Slam tennis today, including last month's quite unorthodox Australian Open. Pam Shriver on the sisterhood of women's professional tennis and becoming a champion. This is The Supporting Cast. Welcome to the supporting cast. Eli, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation and um, I'm excited to talk about tennis and my childhood and education and anything. Well, I'm excited to have that conversation with you, Pam. But first, I do want to start with the present. We are amid this pandemic, which is strange for all of us. You're a parent, I'm a parent, but you also are a reporter and a broadcaster with ESPN and, and we're just covering the Australian Open, but not from Australia. So if you could talk a little bit about how kind of how it's been coping with the pandemic, but in particular, this most recent coverage of a major where you would normally be in Melbourne covering tennis, but you were actually in Connecticut yes. uh, covering the Australian Open. Well, I think the pandemic has taught us to be open to new ways of doing things from the very That's beginning. Right. So I was not able to be at the U.S. Open. I worked remotely from my office with great technology, and but I didn't contribute all that much. I just did little segments maybe at the end of a Serena Williams match. And I felt it was really important that I work the Australian Open, which is one of the three major tournaments that ESPN has the rights for. It's, mm. it's the Australian Open, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open. And I hadn't actually called a full tennis match in 13 months. Part of that was because the tour shut down. Part of it was because I didn't go to the U.S. Open so I could call it from there. So it's like any job. You want to practice your trade. And I felt I wanted to get there. So I got there. We had to call the matches live on Melbourne time. So Connecticut is 16 hours behind. So our workday started at about 7.30 at night with a production meeting and would go through until about 7.30 in the morning. 
And then, wow. we would, and then we would try and get some sleep, and then we would rinse, repeat for 14 days. Wow. And as far as overall, in my you know, family situation during the pandemic, I'm a single mom of three teenagers. Yep. Um, my daughter, Caitlin, is a freshman at Harvard Westlake. Just uh, recently, she got to campus for the first time for dance production. Dance is one of her passions. And I have a child at Pally High, and Caitlin's twin is at Viewpoint. So I'm new to being at Harvard Westlake. However, my goddaughter, Devin O'Fallon, graduated about 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And I used to come and watch her on the upper school campus play volleyball. Mm. And it's been fun to get to know Harvard Westlake again during this intriguing historic time. Yes. And you have a long history with Rick Commons through Baltimore, Maryland. That's right. That's right. We uh, shared the same school at different times. I was a member of the class of 1979 of McDonough School. And when I was still a trustee, Rick joined as uh, the number two at a, at a school K through 12, an amazing school in Baltimore, like 350 acres in the, the place where I got to graduate from high school. Well, I want to get to that story, but I first want to actually just talk about the Australian Open, if, if you wouldn't mind talking about tennis, um, which I'm sure you're used to doing. It was a great tournament, obviously on the men's side, Djokovic won, and on the women's side, Naomi Osaka, who beat Serena in the semifinals. As I told you, my wife and I were rooting for Serena, but we were happy Naomi won as well. So tell us about the tournament. What, what stood out for you in broadcasting remotely that far away, sort of the technical difficulties, and what did you think of the tennis? Well, I thought all things considered at this time for all professional sports, like most businesses, these athletes have had to pivot and do things a lot differently. There's been no professional sports bubble as complicated as it was down in Melbourne. All the athletes were flown in about 16 different chartered flights at 20% capacity by Tennis Australia. They had to go through an extremely strict quarantine process uh, because the island nation of Australia, similar to how New Zealand has figured out how to keep the virus for the most part out of their country. Yeah. So they didn't want international tennis players who at times during the return to play that started in August. Mm -hmm. And even before that, during some exhibitions, there were some professional tennis players who really didn't practice the safe protocols that COVID demands. Yeah. So that was an interesting story. So like, for instance, Jen Brady, who got to the finals. Right. Lost to was, Osaka. Yes. She was one of the unlucky 72 players who happened to be on one of the three airplanes where at least one person tested positive upon landing in Melbourne. So instead of getting the quarantine protocol of 19 hours in your room and five hours at the tennis center to combination play tennis, eat, and work out at the gym. Jen Brady and 71 others had to stay in their hotel room and not leave their hotel room for 14 days. While they're about to play a major tournament and they've, they, they would otherwise be training, correct? So quarantine was supposed to stop like about seven or eight days before the start of the Australian Open. But it was more complicated for the athletes. But they ended up getting fitness equipment into their room, like a cardio. You could order either a treadmill or a bike. They had to put it together themselves. So anyway, before before wow. first ball, there were right. so many interesting stories. And the players, of course, can post. One of the things they did was they posted amazing things on their Instagram of like hitting a tennis ball against a mattress that was 
propped up against the wall, serving like a backboard. So that's all before first ball. Then once the tournament started, it kind of took on a little bit of normalcy. And then halfway through, there were a couple of positive, not, not a couple, there was like 14 cases at a Melbourne airport hotel that had a little bit of community spread. So they ended up shutting down to uh, any spectators. So that was another big story. So it went from having spectators for the first five days, then five days with no spectators. And then the last four days of the 14 day tournament, they allowed spectators back in. So it had to feel at least some people towards the end as Djokovic was gaining on Nadal and Federer, getting to 18, trying to chase 20. And then Serena Williams, as you mentioned, fell two matches short of matching Margaret Court's 24. But Osaka is proving right now on the women's side to be the best hardcourt player, which the Australian Open and the U.S. Open are both played on hardcourts. And mm-hmm. Djokovic, not only the best hardcourt player, he's just the best men's player on the planet right now. And he's about to break Roger Federer's record of the most amount of weeks at number one in the world. Hmm. Regarding Djokovic, he might break that record, but he doesn't seem to have the warmth of response among fans as someone like Federer or Nadal had, for example. I know in, my, in, in our family, we're big Federer fans. We love Roger Federer. And Djokovic just doesn't have the same appeal, yet he's an absolutely brilliant player. Where where do you think that comes from? Is that something he, do you think, can turn around? It's a great question. I love how you phrase that warmth of response because you're, you're correct. Um, yeah. Obviously, Roger Federer came onto the scene first, and he's just stood this extraordinary test of time. And people, he's just one of these special athletes that come along every so often that's just admired across the globe. But then you have this Spaniard guy, Nadal, contrasting styles, a little bit younger. And then he ends up with an extraordinary run, not only at the French Open with 13 Roland Garroses, which is crazy yeah, to even think about, but he also conducts himself and he gives back to the sport. He, he's very, they're both very charitable. So these two set a very high bar yeah. for, for Djokovic, who for whatever reason, he doesn't connect with the fans in the same way that the Rafa fed camps connect to their players. He yeah. he does have a strong, believe me, the Serbian population and, and he has other fans around the world. They're they're starting to get behind him more because they realize, wow, he's not he shouldn't be rooted against this way. He's also an all-time great. But he kind of eggs them on. Like I remember a match at the US Open against Andy Roddick early on and the New York crowd was going nuts for Andy Roddick, who's from the United States. And Novak yeah. is like very sarcastic and defiant and like what do you expect? Like if you're playing Andy Murray on center court Wimbledon. So he's brought on some of it himself. And what about on the women's side? I mean, the men's, you know, I was looking at the top 25. There actually aren't any Americans that are barely in the top 25 right now, but Americans are all over the, uh, the female top 25. Naomi Osaka actually plays for Japan, but there are many others. I mean, you mentioned Jen Brady, um, Madison Keys, Sloane Stevens, obviously Serena is still there and Venus somewhat as well. How do you explain American women's tennis being so successful. Obviously, you were part of it as well, but what about today? Why are they outplaying the the American men in some way? When you think about the opportunities for female athletes, what is the number one sport worldwide for if if you want your kid or if a kid wants to become a pro athlete in a sport, through the decades women's tennis has been the place. I mean, Billie yeah. Jean King 
and the original nine, that's an amazing story in the early 70s, um, equal prize money at the US Open starting in 73, yeah. establishing of the, the women's tennis tour separate from the men, yet coming together at the majors and playing together. Now all four majors pay equal prize money. So for women, I can see why, and it's very global, so I can see why it's been of such appeal. In the United States, when you think about it, if you are a male athlete, think about all of the choices. So in my mind, the sport of tennis has not marketed itself or presented itself to the best male athletes as say, hey, we're a head safe sport. We don't generally ever get concussions. There have been one or two freak things happen. It's global, it's generational, it's co-ed, we teach equality. There's just a lot of core values of tennis that I just don't think we as a tennis nation haven't gotten through to the general population and, to, and, and I think, and frankly, into urban areas where a, a lot of great athletes turn to football, basketball, maybe yeah. baseball, even in back east, lacrosse, even here now. Um, so we got in the men's side, we need, frankly, we need better athletes, just like on the women's side, we have great athletes. Yeah. I know when I was a kid, Andre Agassi was just everywhere. I mean, he was in the Canon commercials and he had such, you know, he was wearing cool outfits. And in terms of marketing, like you say, he was someone that I think kids identified with who were young kids playing tennis. And there isn't really that person on the men's side right now if on the men's side on the women's side i think there are yes if you had told me that when andy roddick won the 2003 us open and that came after that actually agassi was still playing sampras had just won the us open two years earlier and played his last tournament yeah you know you think about john McEnroe, jimmy connors um, yeah. all the greats of the, even generations before that americans had really led the way on the both the men and the women's side I would never have believed that we would be now 18 years since a U.S. man has wow. even been in a final of a major. Yeah, that was Roddick's only major, right? Yeah, he got to a lot of finals. Federer got right. in the way a lot. Right. But it's just, and, and it's not like people aren't trying to figure it out. It's just, it's also tennis has become much more global. And there's yeah. uh, ready access to tennis, good tennis programs throughout the world. A friend of mine is producing a movie that's going to come out about the Williams sisters. It stars Will Smith. He does Richard Williams. So they'll, they'll hopefully there'll be more, more marketing on that side coming out soon too. But I, I want to get to you. You were a great in American tennis for many, many years. And I want to get to that. But you started off, you were born and raised in Baltimore. Is that right? Yes. I was a July 4th baby born at Johns Hopkins Hospital in 1962. <laughs> Sam and Margot Shriver, my parents, and uh, Baltimore is still a big part of who I am. I own a, I still own a little piece of the Baltimore Orioles since 1992. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. Uh, I've always loved sports and Baltimore. I think growing up then we had, you know, the Baltimore Colts won a Super Bowl. The Orioles won a couple of World Series. I actually can barely remember 66. I was four, but I can remember little glimpses of when the Orioles beat the Dodgers in four straight and Jim Palmer, who was one of my sporting Baltimore heroes growing up. I don't know. I just remember a lot about sports. And then you throw in what was going on in women's tennis when I was like eight, nine, 10, 11 with what Billie Jean King was doing and just had a huge influence on my, on my life. Yeah. Can you talk about that? I know you got to know Billie Jean King later in life, but as a young person, what was it like to see the battle of the sexes and 
thinking, dreaming about being a professional tennis player and seeing someone like Billie Jean set that example? Well, I was 11 years of age. I remember watching the match with my older sister. My mom and dad, like many people who enjoyed playing the sport of tennis, went to their tennis club to have like this party to see who was going to win, Bobby Riggs or Billie Jean mm -hmm. King. And it turned out it, it was a bigger than life promotional situation as well as a vitally important tennis match for Billie Jean King to win because of what was going on in society where women were trying to get more rights, equal rights, not have to have their husbands sign off on them having a credit card. Who knows? You know, at least hmm. at least in the 70s, women had been voting for quite a few years. But, you know, we've we've come a long way from that. And and I'm proud of the fact that the sport I have fallen in love with has had one of the great leaders in Billie Jean King, not just for equality in what we're talking about, gender equality, but really equality across the board. And she at age 76, I think she's 76. She's she's still doing mm -hmm. amazing things, even during this pandemic. She has great core values of equality and it's somebody I'll always admire. I interviewed Jason Collins, who's class 97 at Harvard Westlake, first openly gay NBA player. And he talks about examples, some of his heroes growing up, particularly before he had come out, were people like Billie Jean and Martina Navratilova, tennis players, actually female tennis players, not necessarily NBA players um, that you might expect. I love that. And I, I know Jason because he, he, as you said, he loves the sport of tennis. And, he does. Um, yeah. And we often direct message each other on our Twitter accounts. Um, <laughs> what what I, I love about women's tennis is, and you mentioned, my, I was lucky enough, my big business break in life was when Martina Navratilova called me on the phone in October of 1980 and asked me to be her partner starting in the beginning of 1981. And that started a 10-year partnership that was truly amazing. And I was her and how many, sorry, just start to interrupt yeah. you. How many majors did you guys win as a doubles partner? Chef? We won 20 together. And <sighs> I, so I did manage to win two without her. And then I, I also won an Olympic gold medal with Zena Garrison. That's not right. considered quote unquote a major, but obviously an Olympic Still pretty gold. cool. Yeah. Damn. It's like, it feels like one. <laughs> I don't know. I like that Jason sort of reminds us of how many, besides Billie Jean, there's Martina. There was also Natasha Zvereva, who I won my last U.S. Open with. She was from Belarus, and it was right mm -hmm. after the Soviet Union broke up. And she actually, as a woman, told her the, the old breaking up of the USSR Federation, whatever, I'm keeping my prize money. This is not yours anymore. And then Lee Na, a decade or so later, she became this breakout athlete from China. And mm -hmm. Lee Na really told the, the government in China, uh-uh, I'm keeping my endorsements. I'm keeping my prize money. So I, again, going back to what Billie Jean King, she set the table for women tennis players and, and women athletes. I, I think about how soccer standing up for equality and the U.S., female hockey team just did. I really think Billie Jean, going back to the early 70s, and, and also some other professional women players, really helped set this table. Yeah, the WNBA right now as well, doing a lot in that regard. But you mentioned before, you were educated at McDonough School, a great independent school in Maryland. Can you tell me a little bit about what that experience was like? I assume playing tennis there some, and then you also mentioned there was a teacher there that was uh, particularly inspiring to you. Yes. Well, McDonough Schools has an interesting history because it used to be male military. Uh, and then mm. in the early 70s, after the Vietnam War, a lot of things changed with military schools. And so it went male civilian for a few years. And then 
fortunately for me, starting mm -hmm. in the mid-70s, the board of trustees decided it was time to make that step to becoming co-ed. So I joined wow. the second freshman class of girls. So second year that it was co-ed. My first year, I was a two-sport athlete. My history teacher, Marty McKibben, my history teacher at McDonough was also the head. I was, they only had boys tennis because they were still formulating the, the girls sports teams. And, they, and so it was co-ed. Tennis is a great co-ed sport. So mm -hmm. I joined the boys varsity tennis team and I also played varsity girls basketball. And Marty McKibben was the coach on both teams. And he taught me U.S. history. And he also happened to have been a tennis pro at the club I grew up and he was the first person when I was about four or five years of age that told me and told my parents that I had exceptional hand-eye coordination and that there was a skill there that he hadn't seen before and he'd been around sports his whole life. Mm. Good for tennis, good for doubles tennis in particular, right? Yes. But you at 16, I should add, played in the finals of the US Open. So how did you get from joining the school, playing on this co-ed team you had mentioned before that you never went to one of these sort of tennis factories, the Nick Boletari thing in Florida, those types of things. You only trained in Maryland. How do you get sort of from there to suddenly standing center court at the U.S. Open at 16 <laughs> playing in the U.S. Open final? Well, I have to go maybe, maybe it was my freshman year at McDonough when my longtime coach, Don Candy, came over and told my parents that they needed to start to think in their heads that... I was going to have a pathway towards professional women's tennis. So that was one important conversation, sort of to, to like realize, okay, my talent and, and my coach had played the world circuit in the 50s and 60s before it was a professional game. He played as an amateur, but he kind of had an eye for it and he knew. Uh, McDonough was a great, like Harvard-Westlake, was culturally exceptional for the athlete mindset. They really embraced me thinking big, whereas I had gone to a previous school that didn't do that. I, I didn't hmm. feel like the previous school allowed me to think and reach for the stars, whereas McDonough did. And I think Harvard-Westlake hmm. is the same thing. I thought it was really important that an independent school, when a, when a student has an exceptional talent, that they make some accommodations. And so they did. I was able to play some professional tournaments starting my sophomore year. So I'd missed some time at school. But as long as I caught up with my work, as long as I met with my teachers when I got back, it was it was okay. Now we're talking 1978. Mm -hmm. So I started to play a handful of tournaments. And lo and behold, I entered the my second major is the US Open of 78. I'm now 16 and two months. I actually was ranked high enough to be seated. I'd done well enough in my six or seven prior pro tournaments. So I had a seated position and I had a great draw. I played well. And then the match that really broke it open for me to get to the finals was beating Navratilova, who had just won Wimbledon and become number one in the world. I beat her in the semis. So that was one of the wow. biggest upsets at the time in women's professional tennis history. And then I played- And how do you- Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How Sorry, do you, it's a before we story. get to the final- <laughs> No, before you get to the final against Everett- I guess, take us back to that semifinal match. How did you manage to 
to beat her that day. Can you go back to your yeah, mindset? Yeah, I can at go back. Point? I can remember a lot about that match. Um, I can yeah. remember there were two rain delays that allowed me time off the court to talk to my coach, which was really invaluable mm. because otherwise it is illegal to coach during a match at the U.S. Open, although it occasionally does happen. Martina didn't have one of her best days. I think she was mm-hmm. trying growing into becoming number one in the world, so she felt pressure and. Also, my style of play, I'm I, I'm six feet tall. I rushed to the net. I had a big serve. And I played a similar game to Martina. Generally, we played 40 times. I only beat her three times, twice at the U.S. Open. So believe me, this isn't somebody I normally beat. But <laughs> right. occasionally when my game was spot on, I could just take the net away from her. So I felt like my mm. strategy that day, and she was a little bit off, it just worked. And I won seven six seven six. And to be honest, I, I couldn't when it happened, I couldn't believe it that I was in the finals of my first US Open. Yeah. Wow. Oh, one 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 other thing after so I, I lose to Chris Everett in the finals. And then the next right. day I start my senior year at McDonough. I took summer courses. So I, I graduated high school in three years, minimum amount of high school credits. Because guess what? When I got finals US Open, it meant kind of I was not gonna be going to college. I was gonna be I was the only one in my class of hundred and four not to go on to college. And mm. I went on to a different kind of school, the school yeah. of professional tennis. Wow. So what was it like, you said the next day after? Yes, because yes, because I missed the first few days of school because the US Opens played Labor Day weekends in the middle. And so school had started. And um, I just remember I could speak in front of, like give my runner-up speech, my finalist speech, like 18,000 people on the old Louis Armstrong Stadium that used to be before Arthur Ashe. And right. I was more comfortable than I was when Dr. Bill Mules, who was the head of school, he's like the Rick Commons <laughs> of the 70s at McDonough, said, we would like you to speak to the entire student body the day after I get the finals US Open. So wow. that was like, you're an adolescent, you're 16, you really don't wanna stand out like that. But I had, I was not given much choice. And I also knew that um, maybe I'd get a little extra credit if I did some public speaking and I, I was already behind a few cl- the few assignments. <laughs> so you need to score some points yeah. academically as well as on the tennis court. Yes, I did. So then your kind of career launches from there and you obviously played singles and had a successful singles career as well, but it was really doubles where you, again, won all of these tournaments. So what was it about you that made Martina call you in 1980 to, to join her as a doubles duo? Well, I think beating her in the semis in 78, that was impactful. Also, yeah. another really important match was finals of the doubles in 1980. So that's of the US Open. So this is September of 1980. I'm playing with a player who was a pretty good doubles player for like two decades, but she was about to retire. Her name was Betty Stova. It doesn't matter. But we were playing against Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova. So I'm wow. now I'm now 18, but I played really well in this final. We lost, I think like six and six. We It was a close match. We lost. But it was a month later I got the call. So I think it was a combination of, hmm. and, and also by then Martina knew my personality she knew that I like to have, well, I took it all very seriously. I, I insert humor when I can. She enjoyed my sense of humor. She thought my style of play would match up to hers. She's a lefty. I'm a righty. Mm. We both like to be aggressive and come to net. So I thank her. It was, as I said, it was my big break in my career. And what did you learn from playing with her? And, and what, what was it, I guess, tennis-wise first, 
kind of what about her game kind of made you better, but also kind of as a person, what did you learn from playing with someone who is, again, one of the great singles players of all time? Well, both on and off the court, she took risks. And mm. that, I think, in any business, if you're going to become successful, you have to know how to take risks. And she did that. She also didn't leave any stone unturned when it came to trying to be the best she could be. And this is probably something if I look back and say, oh, you know what, I could have done a few things. I would look at it now. I would say, well, Martina Navratilova had a growth mindset. Like she was open mm. to coaching. She was open to trying new things. And funny enough, I've become more open mindset as I've become a parent. Whereas I feel mm. like when I was younger, I was a little bit stuck in my ways. So mm. that was one thing that I recognized was impressive, but for some reason I couldn't quite emulate it. I will tell you there's a special thing when in doubles, obviously when you work together that closely and so it's sort of project-based experiential learning and got the common goals to be alongside one of the greatest of all time and to see how they come through under pressure. It was a little mm. contagious in the doubles. I became a better pressure player by being close to her. And I couldn't quite, although I won 21 tour singles titles and I got as high as three in the world and I was yeah, in the yeah. top 10 for seven years. It's not like my singles career was chopped liver but it was nowhere nope. near as good as my doubles. But then in, in 1988, the Olympics in Seoul, you were with a different partner by that point. Yeah, Zena Garrison. Here's another interesting story. Zena, African-American, grew up in Houston, Texas. She's about a year, maybe two years younger than me. We were in a different age group in the juniors, but I knew about her and she started the tour about five years after me. It turns out Martina didn't want to play the Olympics. This was in the middle of our partnership. Huh. We'd already won maybe... 17 of our 20 majors, but she decided she didn't want to go after the US Open to Seoul, Korea. And it was because of fitness or was it sort of the mental strain or? You know what? I, for some reason, there were a few tennis players early on. You have to remember, tennis was not a full medal sport in the Olympics from like the 20s until 1988 Seoul. When, it, when the Olympics uh -huh. were here in LA in 84, it was a demonstration sport for players. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, 21 years and under. And the reason was because tennis became so professional. There were the best athletes were professional and the Olympic Games were for amateurs. And then when the Olympic Games realized, well, if we want to have the best in every sport, we got to open up. So that's when like when the dream team started, they allowed NBA players into the Olympics. Right. But Martina was a little bit slow to like, it's the only thing she's ever been slow at. <laughs> to accept the Olympics as a great opportunity in 88. And meanwhile, I had my hand up, you know, like, yeah, I was mad. I was six months too old in 84 to play in the LA games. But anyway, so Zena Garrison and I start, played together. We were still the top seed based because she was a top 10 doubles player. She's a good doubles player. But we had, we'd never played a major tournament before. And we ended up beating the Czech team in the finals, like 10-8 in the final set on our seventh match point. And wow. we were thrilled. We Beyond, beyond. <laughs> and what's it like being part of, because it's one thing winning the gold medal uh, and standing on that riser and hearing the national anthem. I, I can't imagine what that feeling is like. But what was it like? You can comment on what that was like. But in addition to that, being part of sort of the American team at large and being in Olympic Village and seeing so many other 
athletes from so many other sports kind of who are the best in the world? It was a dream couple of weeks for someone who loves sports. Uh, yeah. and, and we were really lucky because in the athlete village and in the Olympic village, it was one big complex and tennis was one of the sports in the main village. There were other bigger sports like track and field and which is where the opening ceremonies, that was a little bit away. You know, obviously sports like equestrian, there were just certain sports that were outside of the main complex. But we could walk. I actually remember I bought a bike, but we you could walk or buy a bike and ride to the tennis easily. And then the swimming was there. The gymnastics was there. And so you could catch a lot of different sports. But it was in the Olympic Village, which is just for the athletes and the coaches, where you had the big cafeteria. You know, the good old days when you used to be able to eat together and just meet different people and go to the training room. And I remember Greg Luganis, the, the great diver, that was the games he mm -hmm. hit his head on the diving board. And I was in yeah. the training room that night when he, they were making sure he was stitched up properly. And, oh. and that was Flo Joe's big Olympics when she, she still has the world record for the 100 and 200. Right. Uh, ben Johnson was disqualified. So a lot of things uh, big happened. Carl Lewis, was Carl Lewis? Carl Lewis ended that? up winning it after Ben Johnson was, he failed his drug test. Um, ah, so that was one right. of the biggest controversies. It was, ooh, that, that was, that was a great two weeks. I bet. So then how does your career kind of find itself to ESPN and to broadcasting? Well, that's another interesting one because I think the way I carried myself when I was 16 and got the finals U S open, it was during the tennis boom years and CBS was the host broadcaster and I actually got my first invitation to broadcast from CBS believe it or not, in 1981. So I was 19 years of age. And they didn't mm. have, this was the time, they didn't have female broadcasters very much. They had, it was mostly all men. So yeah. when they had a women's tournament or they had a women's match at the US Open, maybe Martina was playing in it, they realized they wanted a female voice. And they didn't have, like Mary Carrillo became the first full-time female tennis announcer broadcaster. Um, yep. That was starting in the mid to late 80s. So I started to work for CBS when I was maybe at lost in singles and I could juggle playing doubles and doing a few matches. So that's how it began my broadcast career. And then I ended up working my first match for ESPN in 1990 during the Australian Open of 1990. So that's 31 years ago at the event that I just finished calling from for them from Connecticut, the Australian yeah. Open. It's 31 years since I made my debut at that same tournament. Wow. And who's the team of broadcasters that you work with now? Who are some of those names? Well, some of the names w would be 18-time major champion Chris Everett. Uh, his, <laughs> who, who beat you at, <laughs> and, when you were 16 and when we've the U.S. Been Open. great friends, even though she denied me my one chance to win a singles major. <laughs> John McEnroe, Patrick McEnroe, Brad Gilbert, Darren Cahill, Mary Jo Fernandez, myself, Chris Fowler, who's also the voice of college football, Chris McKendry, who's longtime sports center. Yeah. Host who now just uh, she's our tennis host and Cliff Drysdale, who was the first voice of ESPN tennis back in 79. He's one of the few broadcasters that are still around from the very first day ESPN started in Bristol, Connecticut in 1978. It's such an outstanding team. And it feels like those people have been together a long time work well together, been covering majors forever. It really kind of shows when you watch these majors. Well, as you know, in most jobs, chemistry, whether it's a doubles partnership with Martina or the ESPN team 
or your Harvard Westlake team. It's uh, it's a lot about chemistry, communication, having fun, but still, you know, moving forward and presenting a great product. And I, I think we do that. It had certainly had its challenges <laughs> going back to a couple of weeks ago. Because, yeah. um, you know, when you're not on site and you're only calling a match from a big television screen and you, you just hope that the scoring system is because t- you're not there with your own eyes. And right, you're so, right. so reliant on technology as we are right now during the pandemic. And you just hope that you heard everything in your headset right because your eyes don't have the same double check as when you're live in the stadium and can look up yeah. at the scoreboard or hear the umpire better, whatever it is. And you might get a sense if you know they're going to challenge a ball being in or out. You have your own eyes to go, hey, you know, that might have been long. Right? Well, yeah, it's funny you bring that up. That was a rule change this year. They actually went with Hawkeye Live. They didn't even have any, they only had the chair umpire. They didn't have, any, for the first time throughout the entire major, they did do it in some matches at the U.S. Open bubble in New York City a few months ago, but this, this Australian Open went all with technology calling the lines and a player could ask to see the confirmation, but the challenge system for Hawkeye live tournaments is gone, but not every tournament out there will have it. And I'm not sure Wimbledon will, there's going to be some, I'm not sure about Roland Garros either. And working with, I'm curious with, with John McEnroe, did you ever think in the eighties sort of the seventies or the eighties that he would be sort of a broadcaster and wearing a jacket and, and calling, I mean, he's, He's become a really iconic broadcaster, and maybe because of he brings maybe uh, this is my observation, just a sense of kind of honesty to his broadcast, which I think he did in a different way, probably on the court. But I'm curious about your um, relationship, kind of working with him. He was an amazing tennis champion, most yeah. creative, gifted hands as far as a volleyer, and he had obviously the volatile temperament. Yeah, more people grew to love him later in his career, but he has a funny way. He has a great way of dissecting a match and he's entertaining. And so he brings a lot of things to the table. He brings the fact that he's been number one in the world and he's won every major championship minus the French Open, which was a heartbreaker that he didn't. But he's able to bring humor, a great student of the game. And it's people, people want to listen. He's, I think he's one of the few broadcasters that really turns heads and go, wait, 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 what did John McEnroe just say? That's hilarious. And so it's fun working with him. Yeah. And then your relationship with, with Chris Everett, the Chris Everett is famously very close with Martina Navratilova as well, even though they were great rivals on the tennis court, they remain great friends. You remain very close. It sounds like with, with them both. How do you explain sort of you guys all being at the pinnacle of women's tennis being rivals in some sense, you were partners with Martina, of course, retaining this friendship so many years later? Well, I think it's something that tennis teaches you from an early age. Uh, I mean, it is an individual sport in singles, but then there's this team aspect doubles. And then in the early days of the women's professional tour, we didn't have these big teams the way they do now, where most professional tennis players have like three or four people. They have a coach, a hitting partner, a physio, and maybe a trainer. And plus they might bring family members. Back then it was really you were either on your own or you maybe had a coach, but that was it. So we all, if you weren't friendly with each other and didn't, you know, then you didn't have any friends. It was, it would have been an extremely lonely life. So we all became friends. And, And you mentioned Martina and Chrissy, they played 80 times against one another, 80. 
So, so a lot of people are talking about how much Federer and Nadal have played or Djokovic and Federer. They've played somewhere around half as many times. And unfortunately, a lot of that was maybe my fault. Like the ones just behind in the rankings, the ones that were three, four, five, and six, we just couldn't beat them as much in the, <laughs> in the quarters and semis often enough to break up that rivalry. And then lastly, you mentioned another mentor of yours who continues to be in your adulthood is Jane Harmon. Yeah. Jane Harmon is, uh, for people who might remember the name and think, well, wait a second. So she was a nine-term congresswoman that served from sort of the whole LAX area down south towards uh, Palos Verdes. I met her in the late 90s, and she was just amazing to me. She loved tennis. She loved sports, tennis, golf, any kind of sport, really. And then I just remember when she transitioned 10 years ago and decided to make a tough decision and making tough decisions and sticking with them are not always easy, but she decided to leave her ninth term in Congress just after being elected. And she joined the Woodrow Wilson think tank in DC, which is Mm -hmm. a bipartisan think tank. And she's led that thing for a decade and she's just retiring and she's, um, she's looking for one more chapter in her life. And she's just fascinating to me how at, in her mid seventies, she just continues, like Martina, doesn't leave any mm-hmm. stone unturned, has that growth mindset. Whenever she sees me on air and ESPN, if I don't have myself put together just right with the right, you know, necklace or the, you know, she'll send me a text to say, come on, come on, step up your game. But she, in a fun way, she encourages me. And she's been a, she's been a trustee at USC and she went to uni high. And so, you know, there's a lot of paths, whether it's Harvard, Westlake, uni high, Pally high, there's a lot of different paths. And I just love someone who shows you how to work together when you come from a lot of different pathways. And she's done that. Yeah. So before we go, there are a few standard questions as part of the supporting cast and they relate to Los Angeles, which has come up a lot in our talk. We are known for our movies, our food and our climate. So um, the first question I have for you is, what is Pam Shriver's favorite movie? My favorite movie, I'm going to go with my, when I was growing up, my favorite movie was The Wizard of Oz. It it combined Mm. being scared with wonderment and mystery and adventure and sort of a resiliency. So I'll go with The Wizard of Oz. Got it. Good one. Secondly, what is your favorite meal in Los Angeles? It can be something at a restaurant. It can be something you make at home. Dinner at Chinois. Chinois Mm. on Main Street, Santa Monica. I would go there anytime and have their catfish, their Chinois chicken salad, and maybe a beverage of my choice. Got it. That's Wolfgang Puck restaurant, I believe. That's right. Thirdly, what is your favorite place in LA? Is it your tennis court or is it? (laughs) I was going to say. Maybe somewhere else. My favorite place in LA you know, it would probably be the walk that I've been taking during the pandemic with my dog up and around. I live in Upper Bundy Canyon, and I have a tremendous view of some sunrises over the Getty Museum. So I'll sort of combine the idea of a sunrise over the Getty Museum, and that's my favorite spot in L.A. All right, lastly, I am uh, the parent of a two-year-old. Um, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, she's, you know, we're, we lucked out. You it's know, easier there are than some... teenagers right now, let me tell you. <laughs> Probably, actually, right during a pandemic. You know, she's not in school yet, and she doesn't know the difference, you know, with, with a mask. She thinks a mask is pretty normal, so it's actually been okay. But you are, as you mentioned, the parent of three kids, and I'm always looking for advice. What is your best parenting advice? 
probably my best parenting advice, well, at different stages, different times, but I'd say being an attunement is really trying to understand the emotional side and where they are with their thinking. Hmm. And that's something that I'm still trying to get better and better at. And I better do it really quickly because teenagers, you know, they're, it's complicated, but I would say attune, being an attunement with their how do you emotional try to do, state. Yeah. How do you try to do that? Especially when they're teenagers when, and don't, maybe don't want to open up. You know, maybe listen more than you speak. Hmm. Sometimes I think all kids, they don't want to hear too much from mom and dad, but you can set by example. You can use your words. Actually, they, I mean, they have to hear you, but sometimes if you talk too much, which I can do, as you can tell from this podcast, I enjoy talking, but sometimes the teenagers don't enjoy all the words. So I would say be selective and um, <laughs> don't nag. <laughs> Got it. Well, it's been a joy listening to you. Thank you so much, Pam, for joining us and spending this time. Uh, this has been The Supporting Cast. Mm-hmm.